Welcome to the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast. I'm Karen Wright Marsh, and this is the place to find beautiful and broken companions for your everyday pilgrimage. Do you wonder if Christian faith can be truly lived in today's complex and changing world? Well, here you'll meet embodied witnesses, Christians from different eras and different cultures. They're people we sometimes call saints, but they were also sinners just like you and me. Today, I'm here to tell you the story of Flannery O'Connor with the writer Carleen Bauer. I'm happy you're here with us. The American writer Flannery O'Connor was born in the port city of Savannah in 1925, the only daughter of devout Catholic parents. Flannery grew up under live oaks and Spanish moss across the square from the cathedral where she was immersed in ritual, sacraments, and daily mass, sheltered by Sisters of Mercy in a coherent cosmos of faith. Even when her family moved from Savannah to Milledgeville, Georgia, to a dairy farm so isolated that it was reached only by bus or buzzard, Flannery's life centered around God. After graduating from a nearby women's college, Flannery went off to the renowned writer's workshop at the University of Iowa. Although she claimed that she didn't know a short story from an ad in the newspaper, Flannery, wholly given to her writing, quickly became a sensation. And though Flannery O'Connor hardly looked the part, the fiction editor of Esquire put her at the red-hot center of his literary establishment chart of 1963. As Flannery's cultural star was on the rise, she was stricken by lupus, an incurable, debilitating disease that sapped her energy and forced her return to the very muddy and manure farm back in Georgia. Confined there, dependent on her mother's care, she wrote only as her diminishing strength permitted, two hours every morning. Before her death at 39, Flannery predicted that nobody would write her biography since lives spent between the house and the chicken yard did not make exciting copy. Yet, her outsized spiritual dramas enacted on a Southern stage, told through stories, novels, and many letters, ensure her place among the greatest American writers. One cannot get through a Flannery O'Connor story without encountering the strangeness of God. As she said, the greatest dramas involve the salvation or loss of the soul. Her short story, Revelation, startles with its final vision of a field of living fire. The vast hordes of souls rumbling towards heaven. The battalions of what she calls freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs are a queerly beautiful sight. And then these words, 
In the woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up, but what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting hallelujah. Here is a spiritual reality, glorious and disturbing, which comfortable Christian categories cannot contain. Flannery lamented that our secular society understands the religious mind less and less, that people who believe vigorously in Christ are wholly odd to most readers. It becomes more and more difficult in America to make belief believable, yet this is what she wanted to do. Flannery's personal letters reveal a warm, witty, probing woman nothing like the stern author one imagines from her violent stories. She discusses the book she's reading, a funny encounter with a telephone repairman, news of cousin Katie. Throughout the 596 pages of letters, there is a great deal of theology. Flannery insists that she is not a mystic and does not lead a holy life, yet she unapologetically displays her faith a life of continually turning away from egocentricity and toward God. In Flannery's letters, we see the themes of sin and grace, fall and redemption, and the ultimate reality, God revealed in the incarnation. She calls for the abandonment of the self, saying, I measure God by everything I'm not. She embraces suffering, insisting that before grace can heal, it cuts with a sword Christ said he would bring. She embraces suffering, insisting that before grace can heal, it cuts with a sword Christ said he came to bring. While many casual believers think that faith is a big electric blanket, she says, of course it is a cross. Her Christian faith is a demanding one. And then there's that word mystery, one of her favorites. She never tosses it around in a way of fuzzy spirituality. Flannery's mystery is a rich and complex thing. It's the ground of her spiritual life, and it explains everything, though it's not easy to know what she means by it. But while we contemporary readers strip the cosmos of religious meaning, Flannery aims to return us to mystery, where the unseen ordering of the world speaks of God the Creator. This is the central Christian mystery, Flannery writes. Life has, for all its horror, been found by God to be worth dying for. In 2013, nearly 50 years after her death, Flannery's private prayer journal was published, written when she was 19 years old and a student at Iowa. The teenager prays to know God. Flannery's journal is filled with questions. In some journal entries, she prays for spiritual trust. She prays for forgiveness. And then Flannery writes this one line, Please help me to get down under things and find where you are. Flannery O'Connor once said that fiction is the concrete expression of mystery, mystery that is lived. For Flannery, 
mystery might be about getting down under things to find where God is, illuminating the divine foundation of all that is seen and unseen. The yearning, young Flannery, the wavering believer, wrote, I don't want to be doomed to mediocrity in my feeling for Christ. I want to feel, I want to love. Take me, dear Lord, and set me in the direction I am to go. Along with Flannery, we too may pray to feel, to love, to follow, to get down under things and find where God is. The Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast is the audio companion to my book, Vintage Saints and Sinners, 25 Christians Who Transformed My Faith. To learn more, visit my website, karenwrightmarsh.com. Please rate and review this podcast on iTunes and invite your friends to join us. And now for my conversation about Flannery O'Connor with Carleen Bauer. I'm delighted to welcome Carleen Bauer to the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast. Carleen is a wonderful author. She's written a memoir called Not That Kind of Girl. Her work has appeared in Slate and Salon and Elle and the New York Times. She's written a novel called Francis and Bernard, inspired by the lives of Flannery O'Connor and Robert Lowell. So Carleen, welcome to the podcast. Karen, thank you for having me. It's an honor. Well, you've written about Flannery O'Connor. You've thought a lot about Flannery O'Connor. And I included her in my book, Vintage Saints and Sinners. But if you were making a list of saints, would you include her and why? Well, yes and no. How's that for a classic evasive? Um, Well, so famously, she stayed for a little while at Yaddo, which is a famous artist colony where she met Robert Lowell, the famous poet. And Lowell um, had, uh, he was manic depressive. And in one of his fits, he declared O'Connor, who he had met at Yaddo, as a saint. And this drove her crazy, made her livid. And so I think that, um, no, she herself would not want to be called a saint. And she wasn't. I think she's probably more on the sinner side of things. I think she would, and I think she would assent to the description of herself as a sinner. I think that her work is all about knowing that we are sinners and need God's grace. But I do think sometimes she can be a saint. I was thinking about this in the way that many artists are, because artists have to hold, or they they often hold themselves apart from the society they live in in order to create something that seems more imaginative, more penetrating, more wise, more flamboyant, more, I don't, you know, more angry than the society that we're living in. And I think she she had that distance and had that vision and was also resolutely took a resolute stance to stand apart from the society she lived in and to create. And also she was someone who, and you point this out in your chapter, who really was in a battle against mediocrity, Uh, especially when she was younger in the prayer journal, she's praying constantly to not be mediocre. And uh, I think that anyone who tries that hard to create works that are uncompromising and to try to see clearly what she did, I think that is some version of saintliness, but you don't have to be religious to be an artist who could be a saint in that way. Um, Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I had not thought of that comparison between a committed artist and a committed saint. I mean, they're both sort of after this 
otherworldly achievement or connection? Well, I'd like to ask this question because, of course, Flannery O'Connor, we always think of her Southernness. And Flannery O'Connor wrote from what she called a typical Southern sense of reality. How does her sense of Southern reality compare with your own reality, maybe your upbringing or your current experience? Well, she uses the South in different ways. There's a distance between reality and the expectation. There's a distance between what a person thinks of themselves and what's actually going on. So something is at once comic and tragic, which is Southern. But I think that that's, you know, the basis of all humor in general. Kierkegaard talks about comedy arising from the distance between expectation and reality. And I think that her work, I don't think she ever mentioned Kierkegaard's theory in that regard, but although she had with Kierkegaard, but, you know, so I'm Northeastern, born and bred, and I can't, I've had, you know, in my life, friends who have come from the South, and I feel that there's some weird, like, I understand their, I I understand their relation to the place that they come from and understanding it as something complicated and not beloved. And I feel that New Jersey, in its own way, is like a a misunderstood, um, trampled upon state that doesn't get the respect. So, I mean, just to be ridiculous, like there, there are, there could be parallels, but I'll leave that for other people to, anyway. um, I think what I was attracted to when I was reading a lot about her in order to write Francis and Bernard, but what I'm remembering is her humor really, really attracted me. She's a crank. And I would like to argue that um, being a crank is a form of spiritual discipline because it's a way of saying, no, I won't. It's like being Bar- like Bartleby the Scrivener. I prefer not to. Here I stand saying no. And I think that, um, I mean, unfortunately, the flip side of that crank is saying no to the civil rights movement. Like you could say that the crank is a conservatism that breeds you know, attitudes and feelings and beliefs that we wish she didn't have. But at its best, and I hope I don't get in trouble for saying that crank can be, have a best, but I think that it does. It is saying it's a principled refusal. And it's also, it can be also very funny, which she was. And I, and I think that she may be the funniest American writer that we have. I'd like to say that. Toni Morrison, um, in an interview a couple of years ago with a uh, online literary magazine called Lit Hub. She was interviewed, and at the at very end of the interview, the interviewer asked her, "Like, so who do you like at, you know, as writers?" And she's and Toni Morrison said, "Well, I really love a woman named Flannery O'Connor. She's really hostile." And when I read that, I said, well, that's amazing because that's why I love Flannery O'Connor. She's saying, "No, I'm not having no, I'm having none of this. Whatever it is, none of it." And I think that so her her crank is is something that helped her stay true to her faith, but it also helped her stay blind. Her being a cranky lady is something that I've taken sustenance from because I'm a cranky lady sometimes. As you're you're talking about cranks, I'm thinking like Martin Luther, you know, here I stand, I can do no other, you know, or Joan of Arc, or you go down the list of saints and most of them, I think, really had their cranky moments because they were so principled. And it it, it reminds me, Carlene, of, of your words. You say that, O'Connor's fierce and lucid faith refused to sacrifice comedy to piety. So what does that mean to you? Well, she didn't, she didn't think that being a Christian meant she couldn't make cracks. And I think that for a long, long time now, if not for time immemorial, Christianity has meant you can't be funny. And I think that that's why I, I cling to her in a way because to watch how she, 
I mean, if you read the letters and the if you read all her work, what you see is this ability to turn on a dime between being incredibly learned and then talking like a 13 year old in the back of a class, like snapping gum. And it, it is amazing to watch. It's distressing to watch sometimes. It can be liberating to watch someone so committed to her Christianity, but also so committed to making a good joke. And I don't think that one necessarily always undermined the other. And there's nobody like that. They're really, I mean, I'm thinking people can write in and correct me, but you know, Kierkegaard was funny, but not really. Yeah. <laughs> Kierkegaard right. was more tortured and O'Connor <laughs> just wasn't. Many could argue that she Definitely should have been more tortured about certain attitudes she held, but you know, I don't know. Yeah, she was a little more freed up than Kierkegaard, I would say. Yeah, but, I mean, when her target, you know, when her target is pious people, I mean, what's more effective than humor, right? What was it about pious people that just made her so angry? Well, I think that piety, and she talks about really hating things that are pious. I think she felt that when people were pious, they were giving undue respect to something. They were um, worshiping something with without really thinking about it too closely. They, they were letting emotions drive the car rather than an acceptance of reality. Uh, she hated romanticism with a capital R. She hated things that were sentimental. And these words, pious, sentimental, and romanticism, she used a lot in her letters. And I think that this was all a push against people not being willing to accept reality as it was. Also, she herself was someone who she said once in a letter to a friend, like, I can never describe my heart as burning to the Lord without snickering because he knows better. And yeah. I think that, um, and for that alone, I feel like she, just to say a thing like that is is liberating. To say, you know, I don't feel what other people feel because I, I also feel like as someone who grew up in evangelical churches, I would look around a lot and think, I don't want to raise my hands and sway. Like, I, that's not how I feel about this. And I think that often religion will drag you into doing something, sing things, say things without really believing them. And I think to hear her and to be humorous about it, like, you know, the Lord knows better, you know, like, so the contract is not between O'Connor and religion as a construct and an institution and a, as a cultural practice, but it's between O'Connor and God. And I think that that's liberating too, as a Christian. Well, and, you know, we, we have her letters, we have her fiction, and yet only in 2013 did we see her private prayer journal, which opens up all kinds of new understandings of Flannery O'Connor. So when you read that private journal, what did it add to your understanding of Flannery O'Connor? Well, I guess I want to joke and say I realized she was a human girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I love when she says, like, please, please, please let me get published, Lord. Yes. You know? And also, it was, I mean, one knows this if you read the letters. Like, this is not someone who was short on ambition. And she had confidence and every right to be confident in her own talents. And so to see a very, she was 21 and 22, I think, when she wrote the journal in the 40s when she was at Iowa. And I think to see her being vulnerable, to watch her turn from being vulnerable to sound girlish, because she never does really ever. It's like you, you can forget she's a woman. I think the journal, so it did several things. Like it made me realize she was a human girl who wanted something very badly. And also she's funny about the wanting of the thing she wants very badly. She knows she shouldn't, and she knows she doesn't want to really do the hard work to achieve art 
or faith. And I think to watch someone say like, I know I'm lazy. I think she says at one point, I'm too lazy to despair. That's really great on several levels. Yeah. We all feel so that. Brilliant. I mean, that's like, that's real true writing. It's wise. It penetrates a mystery of human existence. It's very brief. It's eloquent. And it's, it's, pow- it's a powerful statement. It's a very short sentence. And it takes talent to do that. There are two great lines that I don't think anybody could ever write and haven't written since, but, oh, Lord, I am saying at present, I am a cheese. Make me a mystic immediately. Like, I love that line, but God can't, but God can do that. Make a mystic out of cheese. Like, what does she mean by cheese? Like, I think she, it's, it's unexpected. You have to sit there and puzzle it out, but it's very plain too. Mm. And it's funny. I, I think it, it just shows us a different side of her that I think the older she got, she tried to keep hidden and that's okay. Carlene, living in this current moment, I think our conversation would be incomplete if we didn't at least address the question of Flannery O'Connor and race. How, how did she see this issue of race and how did she write about race? So there's the way that she wrote about race in her fiction and then the way she talked about race in her letters. And they are... I want to say two very different things because there are things she says in the letters. There's one thing I'm thinking of that, that sounds racist and there's in the fiction because it's told from an omniscient viewpoint where everyone black and white, and I'm not the only person to have described this is this, you know, this is being the situation in her stories and she herself, you know, would say that everybody gets it in her stories, black and white. So and who's been helpful to you in thinking about this question? I mean, there's been a recent article by Paul Ely in which he asks how racist was Flannery O'Connor, but others have addressed this question before him. And I'm wondering, who do you read when you want to know more on this? Well, I, I have gone back to the work. I have gone back to her letters. Like, what did I miss? Like, what else is here? I will say that um, the Alice, I, I mentioned early on an Alice Walker essay that I think she published in around 1975 called Beyond the Peacock, where she and her mother go visit Milledgeville and Walker grapples with what it means to have been a black writer who really loved O'Connor. And I think that it's a beautiful piece. It's an honest piece of writing. It doesn't flinch. And I think that that has been really helpful to me. I also have to give credit to a writer named Amy Alsnauer, who wrote a piece in The Bitter Southerner, which is an online magazine in response to Paul Ely's piece in The New Yorker, where she points out the people who have written on this subject. Um, He seems to suggest that people haven't grappled with this, but they have and they do. And I think that also um, O'Connor in her work I think in the letter, she uses the phrase, a mature faith should not be scandalized. And I sometimes think that maybe you could use that sense to talk about a mature faith in art should not be scandalized. So when we come upon these contradictions and disappointments in the writers and thinkers and artists that we are finding something useful or challenging or nourishing in, should we be that scared off when we see them evince qualities that make us angry and make us make our hearts ache? Like, do we run or do we stay? I think that everybody should work that out for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think this is such an important part of a bigger conversation that, you know, we're having on all kinds of levels is, you know, and I think about it too in the lives of, of these people we call saints, you know, when do they disqualify themselves from your esteem? And 
it's it's not an easy thing to answer. So I think Flannery O'Connor was uh, a person of her time. And it's really, it is reading these, it made my heart ache and made me a little angry to read some of the things she said, because you wonder how someone could write so with such depth and wisdom about Christianity and not understand that that faith encouraged, was telling her to think very differently than she was. So it makes me think about in in the story Revelation, which is published in um, Everything That Rises Must Converge, which is a story collection that was published in the year after she died. And it has stories that are some of the latest stories that she was working on. And Revelation is one of them. It's a story where there's a woman in a waiting room who is making judgments about all the people around her. And she, at one point, when another, when a young woman in the waiting room who's a is identified as a young intellectual who goes to Wellesley, cannot take any more of this self-serving piety, self-righteousness. She chucks a textbook at the protagonist of the story. The protagonist is mortified. She goes home and, and the young girl says to the lady in the waiting room, you're a warthog from hell. And this forces the woman who thinks very highly of herself to, what does that mean? I'm a Christian, I'm a good person. I treat everybody you know, nicely as well because it be expected. And at near the end of the story, the Mrs. Turpin protagonist goes out to her hog pen. So she's been called a warthog and she looks at the hogs and she says, you know, to, to God or to herself, how am I a hog and me both? How am I saved and from hell too? And I think that that's the question that maybe O'Connor was asking from herself, of herself, and also what we could ask of her work. How could she be saved and from hell in a way too? How could she be these two things? But she was lots of things at once. I think she knew that as a, in order to grow as a writer, you need to grow as a human. In order to, for the work to get fuller and fuller and fuller, you yourself needed to change. I, my hope is that she would have had to set her attitudes and beliefs aside because she couldn't support them any longer, that she would change. Like the characters in her, um, well, they're forced to change through a violent act. And so what would she have written for someone had she lived past 39? Like what kind of story would she, what kind of coming to terms with the racial situation around her and in the world, like what would she have written it? Who knows? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. And, and she died, uh, what, 1964? I mean, at such a young age, it's such a good question to at least give her that opening to, to imagine what, what could have been. Well, it is such a delight to talk with you, Carlene, about the amazing and complicated Flannery O'Connor. Thank you for being with me today and to talk for, thank you for talking with me and for exploring all these aspects of Flannery O'Connor. What a great writer. It's been a great pleasure as always. I've always loved the fiction and the letters of Flannery O'Connor, and I've been enriched by Carlene's insights into O'Connor's fierce and lucid faith. I can pray in a deeper way, echoing Flannery's words when she says, I don't want to be doomed to mediocrity in my feeling for Christ. I want to feel. I want to love. Take me, dear Lord, and set me in the direction I am to go.
I'm Karen Wright Marsh, the Executive Director of Theological Horizons, a ministry based in Charlottesville at the University of Virginia. I'd love to hear from you. Come by my website, karenwrightmarsh.com. There you'll find show notes and learn about my book, Vintage Saints and Sinners. Download free printable study guides for your small group or just for yourself and keep the conversation going. Thanks to the generosity of the Lloyd and Vivian Noble Foundation and to the Friends of Theological Horizons. The Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast is produced by Gabriel Hunter Chang. Our music is by Will Marsh of Gold Connections.